This week on The Elucidators, Decoding Global News, we dive into the deep blue waters of the eastern Mediterranean, where Turkey's strongman president Erdogan is in a dispute with historic enemy and fellow NATO member Greece, along with many other neighboring countries, over access to newly discovered oil and gas resources on the seafloor. Is Erdogan still making Turkey great again, or has he bitten off more beef than he can chew this time? We'll also get into Putin's poisoned political nemesis, Alexei Navalny, who is lying in a medically induced coma in a Berlin hospital. As always, thanks for listening. And if you want to help us grow, please tell your friends about us. All right, onward and upward. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Pally, And with me once again is my co-host and producer, Pete Newsom. Pete, you're back. How are you? I'm back, man. I'm glad to be here. I'm doing okay. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Where have you been, brother? I was spending some time up in Northern California with my family. Huh. In our shared hometown. That's right, dude. The place where we... Walked from school to play practice and played so, King's Quest Four at your yep. place. <laughs> we did so much <laughs> stuff. It's hard to recall specific anecdotes. Invented a martial art on a trampoline called Tramjitsu. <laughs> that, that was pretty good. That never progressed past the conceptual phase. But we created a belt system, if I recall correctly. <laughs> so that's an important part of any martial art. The square one for sure. Yeah. It's it's critical to the marketing. Yeah, we grew up there. You went back there to hang out with your family, and mm -hmm. the place was on fire. Yeah, when I got there, it wasn't on fire. And then while I was there, a fire started that initially seemed to not be a huge threat and progressed to being a potential threat, progressed to being a big problem. Yeah. And then thankfully receded. But that was an intense experience to go through. It was actually the first time that I've personally or my family's my family has been threatened by a natural disaster. Other than the pandemic, of course. But yeah, that's a real natural disaster as well, I suppose. A slow moving yeah. natural disaster. I but, would call it a natural disaster. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's super messed up. Except that it was built in a Wuhan lab. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thanks, <laughs> okay. Mike Pompeo. Let's, let's steer this back. <laughs> or Tom Cotton. Yeah, I'm glad that you and the family made it out of there okay. Ancestral House is in one piece, but yeah. California is having big problems with fires right now. Yeah, repeatedly, year after year, in a way yeah. that you've never seen. And it's a sad and shocking new normal. It is. There is a small piece of good news um, that I was going to turn into a full item this week, but it seemed appropriate to discuss it here. Longer run, California is working hard to build out its renewable battery capacity to basically store renewable power so we can get away from fossil fuels faster. Yeah, that's awesome. That can't happen fast enough, really. No, so. we should have done this 10 years ago. Uh, that would have been great. Yeah. We didn't necessarily have all the tech in place, but uh, the world's biggest battery storage facility for utility scale power is being built right now in San Diego. 
That's a reason to be extremely stoked and somewhat yeah. optimistic. Yeah, just the, for real fast explaining why this is important. Renewables are clean and cheap and really nice once they're up and running, but they suffer from what, I guess, power people, experts, <laughs> engineers, whatever. I think they refer to themselves as power rangers, actually. Power rangers, yes, absolutely. If I recall. Thank you. They call it intermittency, and it's this idea that the wind doesn't blow all the time, the sun goes behind a cloud or goes down, what do you do? Well, a lot of new information coming at me at once, dude. Yeah, slow it down. Sorry, I got really technical there for a second. <laughs> I don't know what came over me. Right now, we need to have fossil fuel online to ramp up in those situations when there's not enough renewable. But if we had these gigantic municipal batteries, enough of them, and then people had enough home-based storage that they could feed back into the grid, for instance, then we could solve those problems and not need those fossil fuels anymore. And unfortunately, a fair amount of forest fires are now priced into the model for California, but we could at least stop things from getting worse, <laughs> at least a little bit. Yeah, and have, a, have the groundwork laid for a path that brings things back to being better. Yes, exactly. Where, whereas um, without renewable energy, without moving away from fossil fuels, that's just not even an option. So No, it'll just get worse instead of any possibility of getting better. So small, longer-term silver lining there. That's yeah. California is actually thinking ahead and working on this, even as it is burning, literally. That's right. And, right and now. the company that's making this battery farm or whatever you would call it is actually based in New York, and they've done a project out there. Yep. It could become a nationwide, worldwide thing. And Yep. Elon Musk... Uh, of Tesla was in pole position for the world's largest battery. He built a gigantic battery basically out in Southern Australia inside of, I think, 100 days, maybe three years ago. And he doesn't like to be anything but first place. So he's seeing this project going down and he's already planning to build something bigger, is my understanding. Good. Please, <laughs> yeah. let's get competition into that space. I hope that it's Elon Musk's Boundless ego and and talent <laughs> saves humanity. I'm betting big on that. Anyway, that's not actually our topic for this week, uh, but I thought we should discuss it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We're done. No, just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. No, we're actually going to talk about... What country, Pete? What are we talking about? Well, we're going to kick it off with uh, the Thanksgiving country, as you always call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Delicious, delectable... Turkey, baby. Turkey. We're going to go into Turkey. And we've discussed Turkey peripherally many times on this show because Turkey is involved in many different conflicts. And we're going to talk about why that is. There's a new conflict possibly picking up steam between Turkey and Greece in the Eastern Mediterranean, but everybody hates Turkey right now. They're like the anti-Raymond. Oh, yes. There you go. It's really more of a Chris situation and everybody hating him. <laughs> and Turkey's authoritarian leader, this guy, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, as I think how it's pronounced, Erdogan, let's just call him President Erdogan, has not made himself a popular character in his neighborhood. Starting in June, Greece and Turkey have been in a standoff over energy rights in the eastern Mediterranean. Greece and Turkey are neighbors, and they both are in the northern part of the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, the Aegean Sea separates Greece and Turkey. And... This conflict has been prompted by Turkish President Erdogan ordering research vessels, more particularly survey vessels, to survey the area surrounding the Greek island of Crete. 
for gas and oil. Crete is straight up Greek. This is not in dispute. And the Turkish president is just sending his boats offshore of Crete Mm -hmm. uh, and basically looking for gas and oil. (laughs) So it sounds like Turkey wants energy resources. They do. They're out there looking everywhere for them. They're looking everywhere because a number of energy resources have been discovered in the Eastern Mediterranean recently. Turkey buys the majority of its current gas from elsewhere. They have a deal with Russia um, to basically supply, import most of its gas, and they want to get out from under that deal because, especially right now, they're paying over market because the market for energy has collapsed due to the coronavirus, and the deal that they signed with Russia is no longer a good deal. More generally, if you want to be an economic power, achieve energy independence, you may have heard that from our president, it might be a good idea to locate your own oil and gas resources that you can leverage to boost your national power. Sounds correct on paper, at least. Yes, on paper. And if there's one thing that Erdogan is about, it is boosting Turkish power. Thought you were going to say reading things on paper, but okay. Yeah, right. (laughs) In the month of August, both sides have been sending battleships to the area, so that's not great. And an accidental collision occurred between Greek and Turkish boats on the 12th of August, so, you know, roughly two weeks ago. So basically, Turkish boats are out there, and Greece is responding by sending their own boats out and being like, what are you trying to do here? Yeah, exactly. You're in our waters. This is a naval confrontation, and uh, it's interesting because Greece and Turkey are supposed to be allies within the context of NATO, but we'll get to that. <laughs> they hate each other. They always have. And yeah, they're, they're, they're in a naval standoff right now. So the two countries have escalated basically what amounts to a diplomatic tit-for-tat over maritime rights and quote-unquote exclusive economic zones. So the area in which a country has an exclusive right to exploit the resources, be it uh, fisheries or underwater resources like oil and gas deposits. I want to insert here the opinion or idea that the actual coast of Crete is pretty, it's like reasonable for Greece to feel that's their exclusive zone, right? Yeah, I don't think that Crete itself, the island or the beaches or the coastlines or anything like that are in dispute. The dispute is more how far off the coast does this maritime zone extend? Uh And the Eastern Mediterranean is turning into a place where there are a lot of disputes in terms of who owns what sections of the ocean floor. And we see this also in the South China Sea. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and this sort of dispute is now ex- extending to the Eastern Mediterranean, which is obviously right next door to Europe. And if you're a Greece, part of Europe, <laughs> or Cyprus right. for that matter. Yeah, so it's interesting to see this type of dispute spread. But yeah, we've seen it more recently in the South China Sea, where China has been building artificial islands to extend jurisdiction over oil and gas fields there. Well, to be fair, Crete is an artificial island that Greece built, right? In the last 10 years? I don't know. I'm going to have to look that up after the show. That sounds I, I think it's plausible. true. It's true. You can just trust me on that. Okay, yeah. No, we'll go with that. That sounds good. Yeah, but it's still Greek territory. Yeah, moving right along. <laughs> Crete is an artificial island. <laughs> Built 10 years ago. That would be a big artificial island, man. Crete's not small. Anyway, yeah, they, they've gotten into this contest, Greece and Turkey, and they've been in many contests over the millennia, 
basically, that they've been fighting one another. Turkey recently signed a deal with Libya to cut into Greece's maritime claims, because Libya has been the neighborhood and has claims on, on the eastern Mediterranean seafloor as well. So they now have overlapping claims um, legally to this piece of ocean um, that Greece is also claiming. Libya is nowhere near Greece, is that correct? That is correct. But for some reason, they have ocean claims that extend into the eastern Mediterranean far enough to be a player in this dispute. And I don't, I have no idea how that works. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious what that reason is. Whatever it is, it's got to be convoluted. Yeah. In any case, this is what Turkey wanted in part in exchange for rescuing the government in Tripoli in the Lib- Libyan civil war, which it was losing against mm-hmm. this dude, uh, Khalifa Haftar. There's a civil war going on in Libya right now, and we did an episode on it uh, a number of months ago. Sounds like they should have called in Khalifa Holtar if they wanted to win the thing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In response, Greece has done the same thing with Egypt. So Egypt is now getting drawn into this. And you can see the outlines of basically an anti-Turkish coalition coming into play here in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, just to make things more complicated, the United States, France, and Russia all have naval forces nearby on standby just watching the situation. So this may or may not be a big problem, but it kind of has the outlines of looking like a potential war. Yeah, ruin. flashpoint, hotspot, absolutely. Where an accidental firing of a weapon could lead to a bigger problem. Yes, a much bigger problem very quickly. And here's the thing. Greece and Crete are also part of the European Union. Crete being part of Greece and Greece being part of the European Union. Turkey is not part of the European Union, which is a sore spot in Turkey because they tried to join for a really long time and eventually quit trying to join and accused the EU of being a quote-unquote Christian club because Turkey (laughs) is a a Muslim country. Uh, So they The fact that Greece and Turkey are both in NATO but not both in the EU is is problematic. Yeah, it it definitely complicates things. Very anyway, odd. yeah, it is odd, and there are historical reasons for that. To some extent, the EU is a club of Christian countries, even if they won't say that explicitly. And right, and Turkey was it became secular for a period of time, and now it's yes. moving back towards being more of an Islamic. Yeah, it it was a military dictatorship for quite a while, and but a secular was, one. Yeah. militantly secular and has moved back in the direction of Islamism over time. Anyway, Greece is accusing Turkey of attempting gunboat diplomacy by threatening Greece militarily and basically throwing its weight around by sending a fleet into this area. Meanwhile, Erdogan has basically held a knife to the EU's throat by threatening to send a fresh wave of refugees through his borders to Greece and the EU more broadly. And he's already sent 100,000 refugees from Syria towards the Greek border earlier in 2020. And this is a big, yeah, mostly from Syria, not entirely. um, Are these refugees who have settled in Turkey who would then be expelled, or is it just they're moving through? Great question. Turkey has absorbed literally millions of Syrian refugees because half of Syria has left Syria. Yeah. I see you mouthing, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. So some of them have settled in Turkey, but many of them don't want to stop in Turkey. They want to go all the way to Europe Mm -hmm. because Europe is way nicer than Turkey and wealthier. 
they want to get to places and for like a period Sweden. of time was quite welcoming to Syrian refugees, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they well, some countries more than others, and this right. has been a point Germany's of contention, especially. Was yes, yeah, but not so much anymore, especially not during pandemic times. This all of these problems become worse during the pandemic because those refugees might be infected. And if you have 100,000 refugees headed towards your border who've been living in gigantic camps, who knows? And this is what Erdogan did earlier this year. He sent 100,000 refugees towards the Greek border earlier in 2020. What happened when they got there? They were not allowed access, and they went back to Turkey. But this was a warning, right, of uh-huh. what he's capable of doing. Got it. Because So he's using that threat as leverage in this oil drilling or natural gas claim. Exactly, on, yeah. On the shore of Crete. Yeah, he's using every lever available to him to turn the screws on Greece and more broadly the European Union. So it's not surprising that the French are not happy about this. The French President uh, Emmanuel Macron has blamed Turkey for unilateral hostile action, which seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem wrong. Yeah. Germany is urging dialogue. Germany has closer ties to Turkey than a lot of other European countries because so many Turks have emigrated to Germany over the years. They imported a lot of Turks as guest workers in the 50s and 60s. So they have sort of a stronger relationship for that reason. Meanwhile, the Trump administration here in the US has been pretty friendly towards Erdogan. He, I think, likes and admires Erdogan personally. Sure. He aspires to to do what Erdogan has done in Turkey, which is establish <laughs> what amounts to a, an illiberal democratic stranglehold on power. He uh, sees himself as a potential strongman and likes exactly. other strongmen. Exactly. Strong men. And er- Erdogan is a prototypical strongman. And so Erdogan probably thinks he has a free hand until November. So it's time to get while getting is good. And this will be a common theme that will recur in this episode later when we talk about uh, what's happened to Alexei Navalny. Foreshadowing. Yes, indeed. But first, a little background on Turkey and Erdogan, because I don't think that we've really gone into Turkey. And people should know more about Turkey than they currently do. Totally. The fact is that Turkey is a big, powerful, important country that straddles the Middle East in Europe, literally, in the form of the Bosphorus, which is uh, like a, a bridge in between the European part of Turkey and the Asian part of Turkey. Is it literally a bridge or is it a piece of land? What is that? So I believe there is a bridge over it. Yes. It's a strait. Copy that. Yeah, the Bosporus. And basically Istanbul is built around the Bosporus. Istanbul being an ancient city that was formerly the capital of the Byzantine Empire and is now a major world city um, in its own right. Geographically, Turkey is twice the size of California, meaning that it's bigger than Texas, not small, has 80 million people, so twice as many people as California. It's heavily urbanized. 20% live in Istanbul. GDP per capita is about $10,000 a year. Does that mean each individual, the average income? And if that's nominal. If you look at it in purchasing power parity terms, meaning you take into account the costs uh, within the country, it's much higher than that. It's an upper middle income country and an emerging economy is generally what it's called. They have a high tech sector, they have advanced manufacturing, shares a lot of aspects with Southeastern Europe, really. 
So your Greece's, your Bulgaria's, it's on a similar level, but much bigger than those countries. It's a top 20 global economy by size, and it's a member of the OECD and NATO. What is OECD? The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Okay. And so this is most of the rich countries in the world and a handful of developing countries like Mexico and Turkey. Got it. Uh, Yeah. So it's also a very significant military power. It has a standing military of 700,000, which is actually the second largest in NATO behind the United States. That is quite a surprising fact. Yeah. Perhaps less surprising when you consider that Turkey was a military dictatorship for decades (laughs) (laughs) and has a very militaristic history and culture. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit more about the history. Vis-a-vis Greece, it has come to the brink of war with Greece many times over the last 50 years, even though they've both been part of NATO. So, pragmatically, what would other NATO countries do if Greece and Turkey went to war? Like, The United States has basically threatened both of them that if they were to go to war, then they would have big problems in the context of NATO, like getting expelled from NATO. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Potentially. They almost did go to war in 1974 when Northern Cyprus split off from the rest of Cyprus, which is an independent country, but very Greek culturally. Hmm. The Turks basically split off the top third of Cyprus and declared it an independent country that nobody else recognizes. Sounds like the Crimean area in Ukraine. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's this country that they call independent nor- Northern Cyprus and everybody else calls it occupied <laughs> Cyprus. But Got it. the fact is, it's been 45 years, so it's a done deal. It is as far what as it that is. Goes. Yeah. yeah, it is what it is. Now, here's the thing about Turkey. Starting about 600 years ago and continuing up until about a century ago, Turkey was a superpower. It was the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans actually dominated the entire Mediterranean, the Middle East, and Southeast Europe. So they controlled most of Northern Africa. They controlled certainly the Eastern Mediterranean, and they raided all the way to Spain. They controlled the Arabian Peninsula, the Levant, meaning what is now Israel, Syria, and so on. I believe they controlled Iraq. They controlled Turkey, obviously. They controlled Greece, and they controlled Bulgaria and uh, Yugoslavia as well. That is an insane amount of territory. Yeah, and they lost a lot of territory, didn't they? They, Yeah, they did. They almost took over Vienna and Austria. They made it all the way to Vienna and were beaten back at the gates of Vienna. So that's if they had managed to take Vienna, then all of Eastern Europe might be Turkish, basically. That's insane. Yeah. The British Empire might be the only other one to rival that yeah, in the last couple hundred years. So the British got a lot bigger geographically. The Russians, I think, are comparable. But certainly the Ottomans were the last Islamic or Muslim power, world power. And they lost World War I and were basically destroyed. (laughs) Hmm. All of their territories were taken away from them and given to various European powers. And they were Um, made to just be Turkey again. Yes, exactly. And that is when... What was formerly the Ottoman Empire became modern Turkey, and there was a a revolution whereby the army took over. This guy, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, took over the government and established a secular dictatorship and started modernizing Turkey. Is the name Turkey based on his last name? No, his last name is based on the name Turkey. (laughs) 
Word. Ataturk means father of the Turks, I believe. Ah, nice. Yeah. So that's his sobriquet. So this is why the Greeks and the Turks hate each other so much. It's because Turkey actually controlled Greece for hundreds of years and colonized them. And it's also why most countries in the neighborhood just fundamentally don't trust the Turks. <laughs> it's because the Turks used to, to control be. them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, they were the imperial power for a long time. So, yeah, they were the British of the greater Middle East and North Africa. It's not a terrible way of thinking about it. I say that knowing very little about colonial powers. Uh, <laughs> Britain is the only other one that I happen to know of. Maybe there were yeah. other ones like... I know marginally more than you, and I'm saying that it's a reasonable comparison. So congratulations. Thanks, homie. Yeah. So let's talk about everyone. So he's a really interesting guy. He grew up in a poor part of Istanbul, like dirt poor. He grew up religious and... When he was basically a young man, he joined Turkey's main Islamic political party called the Welfare Party. And when he did this in the, I believe, the 60s and 70s, like it was not cool to be Islamic in Turkey. And it was definitely not cool to be part of an Islamic political party because the sort of secular regime was really not about that. Turkey was a democracy, but the army was never far away. Well, look who's cool now. Yeah, super cool. And cool thing about him is he was a former semi-pro soccer player who apparently could have gone pro if he had not gone into uh, politics. That's crazy. I did not know that. Yeah. When it comes to uh, politics, he was an Islamist, but he was also very pragmatic. He wanted to win elections. And he's quoted as saying, we don't need bearded men who are good Quran reciters, which is what you do if you're a, a pious sort of Muslim scholar. You learn to memorize the Quran and then recite it. We need people who do their job properly. Sounds reasonable. As a result of this attitude and uh, political talent, he was elected mayor of Istanbul in 1994. But the sort of secular military allied regime imprisoned him for 10 months for inciting hatred during a rally in Istanbul. Do you know when that was? I actually don't. I think it was in the, the late 90s. So it was after he was already mayor of Istanbul. Correct. And he was starting to run for national office, basically. And he was deemed a threat for what turns out to be very good reasons. Yeah, certainly. (laughs) They identified him as what he is, a threat to take over Turkey. He got out of jail, formed his own political party called the Justice and Development Party in 2001, which started out as a quote-unquote conservative democratic party. What that means is, yes, it is an Islamic party, But it's an Islamic party the same way that the Christian Democrats, for instance, in Germany, are a Christian party. They're not actually very Christian. They're like pragmatic conservatives. And yes, they are for like family and tradition and those types of policies. But they're not about everybody growing beards and women not leaving the home. It's crazy that the government didn't re-arrest Erdogan after he formed a political party like you would think if they were willing to do it once, they would really do it once he actually was like on the way to power. It's a great point. And it is possible that by this time he had achieved escape velocity and they were no longer able to do that. It's that also does possible, happen, doesn't it? Yes. It's also possible that Turkey had moderated somewhat because mm. it was is in the pro it was in the process of democratizing anyway. Got it. To be honest with you, I don't know enough about Turkey to be able to say it's a good point. But The fact of the matter is Erdogan has been making Turkey great again (laughs) since he became prime minister in 2003 and then president in 2014. And this guy is in some ways the original authoritarian populist. 
And we have a lot of these guys now. We have, for instance, Orban in Hungary. We have Duterte in the Philippines. We have Trump in the United States, an authoritarian populist. And to some extent, they are following Erdogan's playbook. And you can say that Putin was the original authoritarian populist, but in some ways, Erdogan has given him a run for his money. It also um, doesn't really matter whether Putin was a populist or not. Like yeah. he was going to be, he didn't need to be a populist to gain power. Correct. He was, arguably, he was kind of Erdogan installed. Yeah. had to. <laughs> yes. And so did Trump and whatever. That is, uh, that is other correct. Guys. Yeah, Erdogan was not anointed by anybody, unlike Putin. Right. You're absolutely right. He had to win power and consolidate power. And he has done that. He has systematically dismantled all obstacles to direct rule within Turkey. So he has stifled the judiciary. He has neutered other political parties, although there are opposition parties in Turkey, and they have made a comeback recently. Did um, he change things to where he could stay in power longer? Uh, yeah, so he has done things like abolish the office of prime minister entirely. So wow. it's now just president, and it's just him. There used to be both a PM and a, and, and a president in Turkey. That's no longer the case. And he has established control of the media in Turkey as well. Turkey is now the world's largest prison for journalists. Yeah, they've imprisoned hundreds or even thousands of journalists. I'm not sure what the current count is, but over his tenure, he's imprisoned a lot of journalists. And the rest of them have fallen into line. And that's where Saudi Arabia chose to murder Khashoggi, right? Correct. Yeah, and the Turkish consulate. I don't think Erdogan was necessarily that happy about that, but it's mm. there's a reason why he decided they decided to do it there. Now, there was an attempted coup against Erdogan in 2016. Didn't work. And he actually went on FaceTime to broadcast to the nation <laughs> saying that he was still in control and that everybody should resist the, the coup plotters, the anti-democratic coup plotters. And what ended up happening is the coup failed. He then systematically purged the military, academia, media, of all of his enemies, imprisoned tens of thousands of people. That's mind-boggling. And the, seized the full sheer control. Number. He just yeah. threw tons of people in prison, huh? Yeah, yeah. It was always easy to imprison people in Turkey. <laughs> it's always been a, a fairly authoritarian place. I went to Istanbul on tour with a band 13 years ago, and we played Pretty. at what I think was described to us as the first rock festival in Turkish history, but maybe that's not true. But <laughs> it was marketed as it such, was like perhaps. a rock festival in the city of Istanbul. Yeah, and one of the venue workers was telling our tour manager that we had gone over our like allotted set time, which I think was not true. And our <laughs> yeah. tour manager eventually called this guy an insult, which is common, <laughs> a common occurrence in in the U.S. in yes. situations like that, but it apparently was a much bigger problem there in Turkey because there are legal ramifications to insulting someone there. I guess maybe comparable to like libel law here or more in Britain where libel law can really get you in trouble, except applicable to like verbal insults. And so there was a question of, I think, whether our tour manager might get arrested. Yeah, it yeah. It's very and bizarre. It has gotten to the point where I believe there's a law against insulting the president. 
Well, that's no surprise to any, yeah. you know, authoritarian. <laughs> it's like the exactly. first thing they do. And think about how awesome, like, uh, Trump finds that because oh, yeah. all the media does in this country is, you know, according to him, insult him. And imagine if he could start jailing them. He's, he plans to implement that law in his third or fourth term. He hasn't right. decided yet. <laughs> that's the plan. <laughs> anyway. Over the course of Erdogan's time in office, Turkey has also moved from being pro-Western and attempting to join the European Union to doing its own thing. And that own thing seems to be attempting to recreate the Ottoman sphere of influence and seize leadership of the Islamic world. Sounds like what uh, Iran is interested in doing, yeah? Interesting, yes. Iran and to some extent, I would say Saudi Arabia as well. Everyone um, wants to seize control of leadership of the Islamic world. Okay. Yeah, and Turkey is actually a pretty good candidate for that because they had leadership of the Islamic world most recently. And it's gigantic. I didn't realize it, is, it was it had 80 million people and was twice the size of California. That's insane. Yeah, it's, it's not small. And yeah, they have a lot of advantages. But it wanted to be in the EU, huh? And did the EU spurn it and just not let it join? Yes. So the EU kind of dithered and drew out the application process for Turkey because a number of members, frankly, did not want an Islamic member of the European Union. They didn't want a bunch of Turks having open access to wherever they want to live in the European Union. So basically the EU is a Christian organization to some extent. Yes. And eventually Erdogan threw up his hands and it was like, if you guys want to be a Christian club. And so he pivoted, turned the other direction. It was like, all right, we're going back to the Islamic world and we're just going to run this thing. We're just going to run this thing, okay. Yeah, uh, because we did. That's what we used to do. Like Trump, Erdogan loves to fight. He's pugilistic. He positions himself as a universal underdog. He likes to start fights. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then basically juxtapose himself against his enemies and say, everybody's out to get us. I'm the only one who can restore us to greatness under these circumstances. Got it. I alone can fix it? I alone can fix it. Yeah, exactly. And he's been saying this, albeit in Turkish, for 17 years now. The upshot is that Turkey is now in disputes with many different countries in its neighborhood, including Greece, just many historical disputes, Cyprus, and uh, the maritime dispute. Cyprus, which is an independent country as well, another maritime dispute. Israel, so Turkey sent a ship with aid for the Palestinians. It attempted to run Israel's blockade of the Gaza Strip and caused an incident. <laughs> this was about 10 years ago. So their relations have soured pretty significantly. And they're in an, the same maritime dispute <laughs> as they are with everybody else. Um, Over this natural gas well yeah, they wanted to dig. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Syria... So Turkey's actually occupying part of northern Syria at the moment and protecting the rebels. They claimed that they weren't going to move in to Syria when Trump pulled American troops out of northern Syria. And Within a did. week, everyone yeah. knew that they would, and then they just did. Yes, so they currently run a big strip of northern Syria, and I think the last remaining rebel-held city. They're fighting Assad's troops, he said. Correct. Yeah, they're defending this area from Assad. And also Russian bombardment, interestingly. They are at odds with Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, which uh, we talked about last week, France and Russia, because they're backing different sides in the Libyan civil war. Once again, Turkey is 
backing the recognized government. <laughs> and Egypt, UAE, France, and Russia are all backing General Haftar. Who's Which the is a weird thing because no one really knows why any of these countries care that much about Libya. Yeah, they all have different reasons for caring about Libya. Turkey's and is quite opaque though, right? They want help in this maritime dispute. And more broadly, they just want to dominate this region of the world. They want to have a foothold in North Africa because they used to control North Africa. Okay. Um, and they want to be seen as the main power in this area. They have a dispute with the European Union and I would say more broadly, Christianity. <laughs> uh, European Union, mostly due to the refugees crisis, in that they have a deal with the EU to hold on to these refugees, but they send pulses of refugees towards the EU every so often just to threaten them. More recently, Erdogan turned Hagia Sophia, which was at this point, for a long time, it was one of the world's great Christian churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, cathedral, really. When Turkey was Muslim, it was a mosque. Then Turkey went secular. It was a museum. And Erdogan, I think a month or two ago, turned it back into a mosque. And it's in Istanbul? It's in Istanbul. So Erdogan, Erdogan just said, this is no longer a museum. Get all the museum stuff out of here. Yep. It's a mosque starting now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it is a mosque again. Correct. And this is part of his culture war. And all of this stuff is a result of something Erdogan calls the blue homeland policy. The blue homeland being the Eastern Mediterranean. It, it's this idea that the Ottomans had a huge navy and could project power throughout the Mediterranean in its heyday. So why can't Turkey do that again? Interestingly, in addition to beefing over the gas resources in the Eastern Mediterranean, Turkey also just discovered gas fields in the Black Sea, um, which is north of Turkey. Is Turkey's claim on that gas unchallenged? Is yeah, that definitely that's, theirs? That's a lot. That's a lot clearer. Yeah. Although Russia's in the neighborhood too, so you never really know. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at this, and I'm wondering: Look, everybody in this neighborhood is really worried about Iran. Iran is big, aggressive, somewhat powerful militarily, at least in terms of paramilitaries and, frankly, terrorists and militias. And, and that's the big worry in, in the Middle Eastern neighborhood. Why are people more worried about Turkey? Turkey is stronger than Iran, both economically and militarily. The other two main powers in the Arab world are Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Turkey is stronger than Egypt economically, not militarily, but economically. Yeah. And it's stronger than Saudi Arabia militarily. It might, Turkey might not have made its intentions explicitly clear just yet yeah. as far as wanting to control that region again. It has the, ability, or it has the capacity, it sounds yeah. like, to be a big threat, but it doesn't have proxy armies like Iran, no. militias, and it's not out there committing terrorist acts. Is that true to say? It's not that, gonna... is, that is true. Yeah, no, they, they haven't caused those types of problems, okay. but they, they are causing a big problem. <laughs> so, the, but maybe the answer to your question is just they haven't shown that they want to do it yet in the same way Iran has. That's why yeah. everyone's concerned about Iran Another at the That's moment. true. And another reason is that Turkey is a part of NATO and that constrains them as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, 
because as long as Turkey wants to remain part of NATO, they can't do too much crazy stuff. If, if they're under the auspices of the U.S. and getting all of their military hardware from NATO and the U.S. If Turkey decides to leave NATO, that's a whole different situation. It's a good question you're asking because Erdogan might have intentions that he's not going to make clear for yeah. a little while. Or if NATO decides to leave Turkey. <laughs> now, Trump would never kick Turkey out of NATO, and I don't think Biden would either. It's too big of an asset, and Erdogan knows that. Mm-hmm. It's a very big strategic asset. It has the second biggest army in NATO. But Erdogan has really soured relations with the United States by cozying up to Putin. He's bought military hardware from Putin that NATO members are not supposed to have. He has uh, Russian anti-aircraft missiles. So he's testing the, uh, how far the he's able to go. Yeah, the boundaries. Exactly. There's like a word a, for that. Boundaries. A, oh, I know all about boundaries. Having a uh, three, three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. Yes, he is testing boundaries. Um, You're the NATO to your kids. Yeah. Do I think Turkey is going to leave NATO of its own accord or be kicked out? I do not, given like everything we know right now. Could it happen in the future? It could, especially if NATO itself becomes less of a going concern and le- provides less value. And of course, the Trump administration has talked about perhaps NATO outliving its usefulness. And I can guarantee you that Erdogan has been paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. Another thing to consider is that the Turkish economy cratered last year. Food prices have increased by 30% this year. And so, like, Turkey is not a poor country in any way, shape, or form. It's fairly advanced, but it's also not a wealthy country. Yeah, and if your food bill goes up by a third in one year, that's pretty life-changing in a bad way. Yeah, for a lot of middle-class Turks, it's a problem. Uh, wealthier Turks in the cities, probably less of a big deal, but they've noticed it. In, ad- in addition, Erdogan's party lost seats in local elections, and that's something no authoritarian populist ever likes to see because it's u- it usually presages bigger losses on the national level. Mm-hmm. So in order to deal with this, he's trying to blame these problems on external forces while increasing repression at home. And he's creating problems with external forces in order to be able to blame the internal problems on them. (laughs) (laughs) Running the playbook. Yep, that's the playbook, yeah. It's basically causing beef and then handing the red meat to your base. Two meat-based metaphors. This this show is not vegan-friendly, I'm sorry. My question is, will it be enough to maintain majority support? Turkey still has elections, and he has been in firm control of all of them to this point, but is that always going to be the case? And what's going to happen if he loses it? He'll just leave office, fake the results, just like in Belarus, right? That's also part of the playbook. If you're one of these guys, you don't want to have to do that. You You don't want want to, to, but you do it. Yeah, if if, probably that's what would happen. But the point is, you never want to get to the point where you actually lose an election. You always want to win, quote-unquote, legitimately by taking away the power from the opposition and depriving them of resources and starving them of media. And that is how you win election after election. You basically make the playing field unfair. You still have opposition, they just can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And Erdogan, as a result of these problems, could be losing his grip on that really important majority support. 
We'll see. I, I don't think much is going to come out of this conflict between Greece and Turkey. I expect them to basically hash out some kind of deal. So I think you think Turkey will just be able to drill for what they want? Do the thing I don't know they about do. that. I d- it's a reasonable question. If they keep pushing, then there could be some kind of confrontation, but I would expect the United States to step in <laughs> at that point. You think the United States would step in and prevent them from drilling or just make them give a share of the proceeds to the Greeks or something? It's, it's a good question. I think what they would probably do is force both sides to back down and go to arbitration, <laughs> basically. I know I'm just asking you hypotheticals that no one can Yeah, know. Yeah, within the context of NATO, it's like the U.S. has a ton of power over these countries. Got it. They basically control much of their um, ability to get military hardware. Yeah. So I have to imagine, uh, I mean, that this well is going to be drilled and Greece will get some of the money from any sales of that gas. Yeah. Or they'll they'll do some kind of swap where they get rights someplace else or whatever. They'll figure out some kind of arrangement, even though they hate each other. (laughs) (laughs) They've been doing this for years. They've been doing it for a long time. All right, that's Turkey. Let's move on to topic two, which is the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's like Agatha Christie, except... We know who did it. <laughs> yeah, we know who did it. From the, <laughs> Not a mystery. From the get-go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Alexei Navalny, who is really... Russia's main opposition figure to Putin and Putin's only plausible contender for national leadership who does not come from Putin's party. He fell ill after drinking a cup of tea in an airport cafe last Thursday, uh, the 18th, while flying from Tomsk, which is a city in Siberia, to Moscow. So basically... There's, I think, uh, phone footage on the plane, and you can hear him basically howling in pain. Like, there's no, like, you don't see him, but there's like doctors like running to the back of the plane. Mm. He drank a cup of tea, and then it took effect while he was on the plane. Russian doctors said that they had no reason to suspect poisoning. They were probably encouraged to say that. But after (laughs) Navalny was encouraged, yes, (laughs) strongly encouraged. After Navalny was flown to a Berlin hospital this past weekend, doctors there have indicated that he was poisoned by a nerve agent. So basically a sarin-type nerve agent, something that is very bad and not a good way to go. He's currently in a medically-induced coma and stable, although doctors don't know what kind of shape he would wake up in if they lifted the coma. Hmm. In order to get Putin to agree to allow Navalny to be flown to Germany, Navalny's wife appealed directly to Putin in a letter. And Angela Merkel, the uh, chancellor of Germany, also facilitated the flight. And this is a big deal because Navalny is only 44 years old. He's very charismatic, good on the mic, good on camera, Russia's most prominent opposition politician. So he's a huge political problem for Putin, maybe the biggest. Well, yeah, like... He's somewhere in between a major irritant and like a problem, I would say. Got it. Someone you might have expected Putin to have killed years ago. I'm he, sure there are reasons he didn't, but yeah, there are. He's been active in the fight against Putin's government for about 10 years. 
when he started exposing corrupt activities in and around Putin's government. And this has made him a very long list of powerful enemies, including Putin, Dmitry Medvedev, who swapped places with Putin for the presidency, Mm -hmm. and several major Russian oligarchs, billionaires who are connected to Putin. He put together a pretty slick YouTube video accusing Medvedev of corruption, like just stealing wholesale from the Russian people and buying yachts and houses. And this received 30 million views on YouTube. So it was... Medvedev can't be happy about having his activities blown up like that. Yeah, yeah, he's not made himself popular with uh, Russian leadership, that's for sure. He's made himself very popular with segments of the Russian population, though. Mm -hmm. And so he's run for office both regionally and nationally several times, and he's been active in organizing protests in Moscow and elsewhere. Most recently, he's done something really interesting. He's organized a tactical voting campaign on the regional and local levels to unite opposition to the United Russia Party, which is Putin's political party. And it seems to be working. Right. What's it called? Smart voting. It's a system where basically voters opt in and they get like text messages or emails recommending who to vote for. Correct. And part of the reason for that is that the United Russia Party puts up tons of essentially fake candidates, people who don't want to win, don't plan to win, but it makes the field confusing to voters. That's exactly right. Yeah, so they split the opposition between, in some cases, dozens of opposition candidates that are basically astroturfed. They're sock puppets. And then there's one guy who's supposed to win, and he's a United Russia guy. And because the opposition is completely disunited, United Russia always wins in these local elections. Navalny developed an app um, that tells people which opposition candidate to coordinate on. It identifies the real candidates exactly. who are serious about... <laughs> yes, yeah, like where to find them on the ballot and stuff right. like that. And so this has had demonstrable results on the local level. And I think when Putin saw that, he was like, oh, this has gotten more serious. Right. Navalny <laughs> has become a new step up the ladder of how much of an actual problem he can be. Correct. Yeah. And once again, if you're an authoritarian populist, and I think Putin basically checks most of those boxes, you don't want to see power eroding on the local level. That's where it starts. And so you have to basically put the kibosh on that ASAP. In terms of what Putin has done to him over the years, he has been intimidated, beaten, jailed, disqualified from holding office, had his assets frozen, had his family's assets frozen, was blinded in one eye by a chemical agent, and has now been put into a coma with a nerve agent. Probably meant to have been killed this time. Yes, perhaps. But this guy just has tremendous testicular fortitude. (laughs) (laughs) And I think everybody in the West who doesn't already know about him should know about him. Because what he has done is incredibly brave and admirable. Yeah, an absolute baller. Yeah, absolute baller. We want him to pull through this, for sure. But yeah, that like Putin has tried to warn him off in increasingly violent ways. Mm-hmm. For he's never been willing to kill, kill him. him until now. That's correct. Putin has never been willing to kill Navalny because he doesn't want to turn him into a martyr. Mm-hmm. And, and you said something earlier that's interesting, which is that 
another reason Putin might not have been willing to kill Navalny is that when Navalny's alive, it makes it easier for Putin's regime to identify who is part of the opposition because they're coming to rallies and they're sticking their necks out basically because they have a leader who is organizing them. That's right. And that's useful. There's actually a whole literature in political science about why you see voting in authoritarian countries. And the theory is it's actually good to have voting and opposition because then you get real information from the populace on how popular you really are so you can actually respond. Um, That's very valuable. Yeah, otherwise the opposition might be hidden. Sure. And in that case, it can be more dangerous. Yeah, keep your uh, friends close and enemies closer might apply Exactly, yeah. Here's the thing though, he's been perfectly willing to assassinate other dangers to his regime over the years. So we have Anna Politskaya, who was shot to death in Moscow in 2006. She was a uh, muckraking journalist. Alexander Litvinenko is probably the most famous assassination. He was assassinated in the UK after eating radioactive sushi and dying over the course of three weeks. Horrible way to go. Who was he? What did he do? So he was an ex-KGB guy who was spilling secrets. Sergei Magnitsky was a, a lawyer who was causing problems by exposing corruption. In 2009, he was beaten to death in police custody in Russia. And there's now the Magnitsky Act in the United States and several other countries that has established sanctions on Putin's regime. And it was named in his honor. Boris Nemtsov was a very famous and charismatic opposition figure who was shot to death in Moscow in 2015. And then another ex-KGB guy, Sergei Skripal, escaped assassination via nerve agent in 2018. By which you mean survived. Like he got poisoned, he just didn't die. He and his daughter were poisoned and almost died, yeah, in, in the UK in 2018. Is he, are they both conscious now and back yeah. to? Yeah, I don't know if they suffered permanent damage, but it was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Russians used something called Novichok on them, which is a Soviet era nerve agent that is pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. So they've used poison many times against enemies. This is not unknown. It's a KGB uh, specialty. It is meant to terrify And I think it does pretty effectively. That being said, there are real reasons for Putin not to have done this too. It could be one of his other powerful enemies. It could be Medvedev, although I don't think Medvedev does much of anything without Putin's permission. It could be one of the oligarchs. It's hard to say. In some ways, it seems like odd timing to commit this assassination because the coronavirus crisis is happening It's just there's a lot on Russia's plate at the moment. Yeah, there is. And Navalny's been doing what he does for a decade, but the previously stated reasons to not kill him were always there, but are still there. They're still Um, there, but Putin might actually be getting more desperate because of the coronavirus. Uh, Things are not going well for the economy because the energy prices are way down. There's also Um, the situation in Belarus where an authoritarian dictator who's been there for 26 years has faced an uprising. Putin Correct. Might, might be wanting to say, don't try yeah, what they're Lukashenko. doing in Belarus here. Yeah, so that's in the West. 
it's not Russia, but it's like immediately adjacent to Russia in the right. West. In so. the East, the far East of Siberia in Russia, there's another series of protests that have been going on for months after Putin's government jailed a popular governor over there on trumped up charges. He's bookended by these protests that basically are, are festering. The economy is, is bad. Navalny apparently was starting to make inroads locally in a real way. Right, with the smart voting yeah. app. And then we don't know if President Trump is an actual asset of Putin or just an unwitting asset <laughs> of the Russians. We don't know, uh, yeah. I think the yeah. latter, but... Yeah, probably the latter. But in either case, he, he is a friend to Putin, pretty unquestionably, and he might be leaving office sooner rather than later. So once again, it might be time to get while the getting's good, just like Erdogan. Yeah. It could be any number of those reasons that led yeah. to this assassination attempt happening yeah. when it did. There, there has been no response of note from the Trump administration to this. You can bet that a Biden administration would respond quite forcefully oh. and not in a favorable way to Putin. And what might happen is Navalny will wake up in Germany and not have suffered significant brain damage. And let's be hope like, so. Yeah, let's hope so. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes from there. If that happens, he probably, I'm guessing, wouldn't return to Russia at that point. Who knows, man? That guy? Yeah, yeah, I guess like, he's like never back down from anything else. So. He, he'll never back down. They'll have to kill him, basically. And that may have been this. It may have been just enough to render him a vegetable. I wouldn't put it past them at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll find out. We're hoping for a speedy recovery, but I guess we'll see. Any last thoughts, Pete? Sounds like dictators are being dictators over there. Dictators be dictating. Yeah, we've got Erdogan <laughs> or on strong one hand. Be strong man. And yeah, and Putin on the other. And I do think that there's something to this idea that they're watching the authoritarian populist window close potentially with the changing of the guard in the United States. Although right. we'll see what happens. And making yeah. moves that they might not have made. Yeah, shoring up their positions. Got it. I, I think there's something to that. E like, regardless of what you think about Trump politically, it is certainly the case that he cares a lot less about what's going on in Turkey or around Turkey and Russia. Than any president prior. Absolutely. Well, in, in recent history. Yeah, he's much more domestically focused and of an isolationist bent. James Polk didn't care much about <laughs> James Turkey. Polk cared, he cared a lot about Mexico, but yeah. Damn, I enough. pulled just the most random president I could think of, and you knew about his military Foreign pursuits. Foreign policy, man. I'm good with the U.S. history. The next several months are going to be interesting for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> In and really? around Turkey I couldn't and, think and of Russia. any reason they were going to be until this episode. <laughs> yeah. Hold on to your butts, as the man said in the movie. I can remember and neither which man nor which movie. That would be Samuel L. Jackson in the Spielberg joint Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for filling. Yeah, filling in the blanks for you. Yeah, and with that, I think we wrap it, bud. I think we do, homie. All right. Talk to you soon, all right? Thanks, man. Bye.